Take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. As you're turning there, imagine with me, if you would, an older couple. We'll just say they're in their retirement years, they're empty nesters, they're, they're needing to buy a new car. We'll call them Fred and Beverly just to give them names so we can talk about them throughout the, the time together. As they think through their need of a newer car, they, they kind of know what they uh, age range of car they need and how much they can spend. And, and as they're thinking through that, you know, they, they want to know what would be the best car to possibly buy for their need. And so in our day and age, what do they do? They obviously go to the internet. They start searching Google and asking Google, what is the best car in this age range for safety and reliability? But they do more than that. Uh, most assuredly, they find their friends who uh, also maybe have bought cars recently and and speak with them, you know, what do you know? What's been your experience? And that holds a little more weight than uh, some innocuous uh, article on Google. But along the way, they probably also watch some YouTube videos, some expert, car expert mechanic who uh, has also done some, ex- some work with these cars and, and knows, hey, listen, this is the best mid-sized SUV from 2019. If you're buying one, you should buy this. And so they're about ready to make a decision. But just imagine one day Fred's in the grocery store and picking up some things for, for Beverly, and uh, he's about to head back. And, and as he's about to check out, he runs into his old, high school, his, his old high school friend who has been a mechanic for all of his life and, and has been Fred's mechanic. And he says to him, hey, listen, I have been meaning to call. You just haven't had the chance. We're looking for a new car in this age range. What's the best one you know? And what do you think is going to happen with Fred and Beverly after they hear their mechanic's recommendation? They're going to be convinced that, that whatever that guy said, whatever make and model he said they should buy, that's the one they're going to pursue looking to buy. Well, what made the difference for Fred? Why, why didn't the Google search right away convince him? Why didn't the conversations with different friends convince him? Why didn't the YouTube video of the mechanic expert convince him? Why was it this guy that convinced Fred this was the car you need to buy? Well, in essence... It was firsthand experience of an expert in the field. That is, in essence, what the Gospels are. They're firsthand experiences reported to you from experts in the field. They've lived with Jesus. They've heard Jesus. They've seen Him in every context and every element. They've witnessed His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And now they write to you as eyewitnesses to say, listen, This Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Savior. That's what John says in this book. In fact, he tells you at the end of the book, that's why I wrote this book to you, why I gave you this record, so you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, and you may believe, and by believing you may have life in His name. That's also what he says right in the middle of our text this morning. So look with me, John 19, verse 31. We'll read down through verse 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth 
that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Did you hear John trip over himself in verse 35? To say to you, I know this is true. I know that he who's reported this to you is telling you the truth. And I know it's true. And you should believe that it's true. He wants you to be convinced that his testimony is sufficient. It's enough. He's, He's told you everything you need to know to know that it's true. But it's not just sufficient. It's also true. You can have one of those and not have enough. You can have a sufficient testimony that is false. And that's not enough. You can have a true testimony that isn't sufficient and you need more. John says this gospel record is everything you need. It's it's sufficient and it is true. And I'm writing it to you so that you may believe. And this is not a report on something that is meaningful for some and meaningless for others. Like for Fred and Beverly, some of you young families could care less what midsize SUV might fit best for an empty nester couple in their 60s. You, it doesn't matter to you. you. I mean, you want your brother and sister to make a good choice, but you really don't care because it doesn't fit your situation. But that's not the case with what John is reporting. No one gets to take the day off when they hear of the message of Jesus. It matters and impacts everyone's eternity. No one gets to sit this one out. And so John testifies in this gospel and specifically in this text because he wants you to know and to believe. And he wants you to know and believe specifically that Jesus was human, that Jesus really died, and that Jesus was truly the promised Savior. Now I know those are basic concepts for 98% of you in the room. That Jesus was truly human, that Jesus truly died, and that Jesus was truly the promised Savior. But I think those things roll off our tongues fairly easily as Bible-believing Christians. So may God in His kindness strike us with the wonder of those things again in this text. John reports to you this reality so that you can know that Jesus was truly human. See that in verses 31 to 34. He's giving you all these details to say there, there is this account you must know. I saw it with my own eyes. And I want you to know Jesus is truly a man. Doesn't he paint for us an undeniably human scene in verses 31 through 34? It's the aftermath of our Jesus of Jesus' last breath, his declaration that it is finished, his committing his spirit to the Father, and then giving up his spirit in death. And, and what do we find? Do we find an a amazingly supernatural and spiritual scene? No, what we find is a very human scene. We see the humanity of it in the body of Jesus hanging on a cross. We see the humanity of it in the the normal procedure of the Romans to to break the crucified's legs. We see the humanity of it in them piercing his side with a spear. But I want you to see first the humanity of the Jews as we paint this human scene. Look at what what the Jews are concerned with. And John's obviously talking about the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, those who are calling the shots. They've conspired to have Jesus executed. And they're concerned here in verse 31 that these three men's bodies would would stay up on those crosses into their Sabbath day. What they're pinpointing here is a pretty obscure section of their own law. 
found particularly in Deuteronomy and a little bit in Exodus, if you read a little bit into some of the texts, in which God has clearly said, you, you cannot let a ashamed, crucified man's body stay on the cross more than that day. He, to understand what the law was saying, you got to think ahead to when Joshua and the people of Israel went into the land to conquer the land. Remember when he, when he got some of the kings and, and killed them, and then he posted their bodies in a visible, physical way, hung them on a tree, as it were, to be a marker to God's people that God was faithful, and to be a marker to God's enemies that you'll be next if you don't bow the knee to the God of heaven. And they took those down. If you, if you were to read in Joshua 8 and Joshua 10, you would see that Joshua followed the law and did not let those bodies stay overnight. And the law was so that they do not defile the land. And so Joshua obeyed and removed those bodies. And so these Jews in John 19 are concerned to obey the law. To get these bodies down before nightfall. But to do that, they can't do that themselves. They're not about to touch those dead bodies and then themselves be defiled. They're not to come and make sure those bodies are dead. Rather, they petition Pilate to do another very human thing. And that's to speed up the process of this brutal execution with a what you might call a brutal act of mercy, if there is such a thing. To stop this execution through crucifixion by breaking their legs. It is as brutal as it sounds. I won't go into too very much detail, but they would take a sledgehammer-like tool and they would smash the crucified's legs until they broke. They would do that so that those crucified in the position of the crucifixion could not push up on their legs to fill their lungs with breath. They no longer had the ability. Their legs were broken. They couldn't do it. And so their asphyxiation, their, their death by gasping for air would come sooner than it would have. And a normal crucifixion, you could be hanging on that cross for days, not hours. This has just been hours since these men have been posted on these crosses. And so now the Jews ask for Pilate to do a very human thing driven by very human concern. Get these men down so that we do not defile our law. By the way, you must know in an archaeological dig site near Jerusalem, just north of Jerusalem, they found a, a preserved skeleton of one who they could tell had been crucified by the other marks on his skeletal remains. One leg was fractured and the other leg was completely smashed. Once again, confirming what we have in Scripture's testimony of normal procedure in crucifixion. You see the humanness of the whole scene? The Jews show their humanity in their hypocrisy. They're careful to not offend a, a relatively obscure section of their law about not leaving a dead body hang on a tree while they stumble all over the clear statements of the law to not condemn a righteous man. To not kill your own Messiah. Here they have hung their own Messiah on a tree to die, but they're concerned that they don't offend one small part of their own law. Indeed, as Jesus once said, they have strained out the gnat and swallowed a camel. They show their humanity in their hypocrisy. And Pilate also shows his humanity in that this is just kind of a, a standard end when you want to speed up crucifixion, and so he orders it to be so. 
The soldiers show their humanity in their brutality. They carry out these orders with with little thought of what it meant. Quickening this crucifixion of the men on the right and the left of Jesus. And then they come to our Lord's body and see that it was already dead. A very human scene. The life sapped from our Lord's body. Why does John tell you all that? Why does he want you to know that's how it went? He saw it happen. Why does he report it to you? Because he wants you to know that Jesus was true and real and alive and a man who went to Calvary's cross and suffered and died there. He wants you to know that Jesus also truly died. That He did not swoon from the cross from the cross to the grave. That He did not somehow find some state of subconsciousness in which He just made it through. They thought He was dead, but He wasn't really dead. No, everyone in the scene, as John paints it to you, can verify and testify Jesus died. This is confirmed by the soldiers who as trained executioners came to the body of Jesus, having done their their horrible deed in breaking the legs of the criminals on each side. Come to our Lord, ready to swing the sledgehammer to His legs and recognizing He is already dead. These are, are trained executioners who know when someone's alive and when someone's dead. They know our Lord is dead. But just to... To be sure, for good measure, one of them takes their spear and thrusts it probably just right under our Lord's ribcage on the left side and up into His chest cavity and out comes gushing blood and water. John's point from a physical perspective is to make clear to us that Jesus truly died. Nobody lives through this. Nobody lives through crucifixion, let alone through the piercing of your side up to your chest cavity where your heart resides. There's been a lot of theories posited about what's going on here with the the blood and the water coming out of the chest cavity of Jesus. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor, trained as a medical doctor and then went into the pastorate, was convinced that this was evidence of Jesus' heart exploding at his death. That when he said it is finished and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit that the the pressure of all that was going on on Calvary's cross caused his heart to explode. The the muscle itself to to completely rupture and burst in his chest cavity. He claims that because then when the spear is thrust up into the epicardium, piercing the the layer around the heart, the sac that contains the heart, which has water in it, when that was opened by the spear's thrust, then out came that water and that blood from the ruptured heart of our Lord. There is medical uh, proof that that can happen, whether we know, don't know obviously for sure if that is what happened with our Lord. Other medical tests have been done on cadavers, dead bodies who have had severe trauma to their chest cavity. And after a matter of, of minutes or hours after that, traumatic reality upon their chest cavity. There's a large amount of hemorrhaging that happens between the lining of the ribcage and the lining of the lung. And that hemorrhaging is a mixture of of blood and water and 
And as it sets, the, the blood settles to the bottom. The, the serum of blood settles to the bottom. And the, the watery substance goes to the top. And so the chest cavity is pierced from the bottom. Out comes the blood first. And, and then the water follows. We don't know exactly what happened with our Lord, but we know there are medical explanations and possibilities for why out of our Lord's body came blood and water. And that's important because that's not normal. I don't know that by experience. I know that by testimony of those who've dealt with lots of dead bodies. And when they do, you don't normally, having pierced it, see blood and water come out. There are obvious medical explanations for why that happened to our Lord. But beyond that, we see John as an eyewitness say, this is what happened. He wants you to know that our Lord died. His real and true life in His real and human body was brought to real and true death on the cross proven by the real and true blood and water that flowed from His pierced side. All of this is to point you to the glorious truth that Jesus is truly the promised Savior. This is a truth that that everyone must deal with. Now, if it's just the first two, then, then you can just go your merry way and do your own little thing. If Jesus was just a man and Jesus truly died, so be it. But if Jesus was truly man and truly died and is truly then the promised Savior proven by His death, then you have to deal with it. That's what John's point is here. He wants you to know that Jesus is indeed the promised Savior anticipated in the Old Testament and now presented in the new. Well, what should convince you of this? The fact that Jesus was already dead when the soldiers came to break his legs. He had prophesied this in John 10 when he said, I will lay down my life for the sheep. No one has power to take it from me. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. So when the soldiers come to Jesus on his cross and he is dead already, they do not need to take his life. They do not need to smash his legs that he dies on the cross because he had already given his life and died on the cross. It's completely unheard of, as you know, that a victim of crucifixion would be dead within six hours of being hung upon a Roman execution stake. It is only our Lord giving his life voluntarily for sinners that is the reason for why he is already dead on the cross. Not only that, but he also opens up for us a fount of forgiveness as blood and water flow from his side. So why should you believe Jesus is the promised Savior? Because it went just like he said it would. He gave his life. Also, because he opens up for us a, a fount of forgiveness as blood and water flow out from him. Physical proof of his death, but there's more here, isn't there? There's spiritual meaning of his redeeming work flowing from our Lord's sure supply of blood is our own atonement and our own cleansing opened up for us at Calvary. The blood is the life source of the sacrificial lamb that's offered in place of sinners to secure their forgiveness. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness of sins before the Lord. The water is the cleansing agent by which we are are made clean and and determined to not be defiled before the Lord. 
Just think back to the Old Testament system and, and the temple, and you maybe don't remember the details, but the Old Testament temple, as described by God, to be set up to worship Him in the most holy place, the, the holy of holies, as the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, rests upon the Ark of the Covenant. Just outside the most holy place is the holy, holy place where the priests enter in and offer daily the, the bread of the presence and light the candles, the, the light before God, reminding them, reminding him of them and, and of their need for him. And they then outside of the holy place was the, the outer court in which there were two instruments that were made of bronze that stood between the sinner and the presence of God. Do you remember what those two were? The bronze altar and the bronze basin. And on the bronze altar, there was sacrificed the lamb or the animal that you would bring for the forgiveness of your sins. Their blood would be shed and their body would be offered as a sacrifice upon that altar. It was an altar of blood. At the bronze basin, the, the sea as it's also called, was a massive instrument filled with water. And as described in the book of Exodus, it's for the washing of the hands and the feet of the priests who would offer the sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And why? So that they would not die before the Lord. That's how it's said in Exodus. So they would not be defiled and would not die before the Lord. So it's a perpetual spot of cleansing for the offerers who bring the offering of the sinner to the presence of the Lord. You see, the, the gateway into the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament temple is through blood and water. And upon the offering of blood and the cleansing of water, the sinner was gained access to the Lord. And so standing between the sinner and the presence of the Lord in the new covenant system, is the blood and the water which flows from the side of our Savior. These old covenant pictures here fulfill themselves in our Lord. The sinner's perfect sacrifice offered once for all for the full and complete forgiveness of sin. The sinner's perfect source of this cleansing and life-giving water by which the sinner is perpetually made clean and given life to serve Him. The order matters here, doesn't it? It's blood and water on purpose. First covered by the blood of Jesus as the sinless sacrifice forgiving our sins and then guaranteed the ongoing, unending work of His cleansing agent, His, His water from His side. Forever cleaned by Him so that we can forever serve Him. Here is our justification and our sanctification. Our justification, securing our eternal standing before a righteous God. Clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. Cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So we can forever be declared righteous before our holy God. Not only is our justification secured by the blood, but our sanctification is secured by this water. Much as what Paul describes, the washing of the water with the Word. A similar idea. The ongoing work of God to cleanse us through Jesus as we walk in this eternal life and serve Him until our dying day. And so we no longer come to a physical and earthly presence of God seeking to draw near to Him through an animal sacrifice and a 
bronze basin filled with water which the priests washed themselves in. We now come to a, a heavenly presence of God. To a heavenly holy place. And we draw near to Him through the atoning blood and the cleansing water which came from our Savior's side at His cross. Hebrews 10 says it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You see what the, the blood and the water have secured for you? A full conviction of faith. That what Jesus has done for you is enough. That, that it is sufficient for your salvation. But then an ongoing cleansing of your conscience. Whereby you are perpetually cleansed by the water of Christ. So that you can continue to serve Him and approach Him in the fullness of this faith. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, after he's, he said that these sinners will have no uh, standing in the presence of God. He gives a long list of, of what sinful lifestyles look like who continue in rebellion against God. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, but su such were some of you, but you were washed. You were purified. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this blood and water flowing from our Lord's side is sure proof that He is the fulfillment of the old covenant pictures and promises. The promised Savior which cleanses our consciences and is the full assurance of our faith. But John goes further. That's enough, but John goes further, doesn't he? Verses 36 and 37, he says, you also can know that Jesus is truly the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, because He fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So He's the fullness of the Old Testament pictures outside the temple. Jesus is the fullness of your sacrifice that you needed for the forgiveness of your sin. But John goes further. He says, look, what happened in the smallest details of the cross are fulfillments of some of the most obscure prophecies in your Old Testament. So the fact that our Lord's legs were not broken, John says, is a sure fulfillment of both the picture of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus and of the promise of God's keeping and care described in Psalm 34 and verse 10. And so he quotes Psalm 34 and verse 10 and verse 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. And he points beyond the psalmist back a few generations to the Exodus generation, when they were commanded to secure for themselves a spotless lamb. And in the offering of that lamb, they were not to break one of its bones. So do not kill it by breaking any of its bones. Be careful to preserve its integrity physically. John here says, you should see at the cross of Calvary in our Lord not having His bones broken like the other two criminals that were, were crucified with Him that our Lord is the fulfillment of Old Testament type and prophecy. He is that sinless, perfect lamb whose bones were not broken. 
And then in verse 37, he quotes to you from Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And he sees in the piercing of the spear in the side of our Lord the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, I know you probably are experts of Zechariah's prophecy, but it's probably been a minute since you read it. So turn back there with me. It's the second to last book in your Old Testament. So if you go to the beginning of the New Testament and flip back a few pages, you'll find Zechariah in, verse, in chapter 12. And I want you to find verse 10. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. In this prophecy, Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12, verse 10, the prophet speaks for the Lord and says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And he goes on to describe that mourning through the rest of chapter 12. Who's speaking in Zechariah 12? Well, it is the Jews' God, Yahweh himself, speaking through his prophet to them. And he's speaking to them of a future day. Now, Zechariah was writing when they were in exile. They were in Babylonian custody. They were about to be released after the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah and sent back to the land. They would rebuild the city prophesied by God. They would rebuild the temple prophesied by God. And they would re-inhabit the land prophesied by God. And they would flourish there prophesied by God. But as you read the Old Testament prophecies, you realize there's more than what we saw happen in the returning exiles. There's more than what we see in Zerubbabel's temple. There's a greater offer and a promise here yet to come. And we see that clearly in this verse when he says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And the Jews of Zechariah's day must think, what in the world is he talking about? This is Yahweh talking, saying they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they must wonder, when have we pierced Yahweh? When have we thrust a killing strike into Yahweh, our God. Well, this prophecy sits for hundreds of years until Jesus appears on scene and then decades later, John deciphers what he sees at Calvary for you and links for you Old Testament prophecy with Jesus' fulfillment on Calvary and shows you that the piercing of the spear into the side of our Lord is the fulfillment of of Zechariah 12 and verse 10, this is when they pierced him. This is when God's people put a spear in their Lord so as to ensure his death. Now, thankfully, there's much more to the prophecy. It goes on to speak of their mourning for him. So we know from John that the moment of their piercing happened at Calvary. But there's more in Zechariah's prophecy, isn't there? He speaks of a day when the mercy and grace of the Lord will pour out on God's people, namely the Jewish people. When they will mourn for the one they see whom they realize they pierced him. And they'll realize that they'll weep for him like a firstborn son that they've lost. Not just lost, but a firstborn son that they've chosen to put to death. 
And they'll be so compelled by the sight on that day as the Lord pours out mercy and grace upon them and brings them to repentance and faith, they will declare their, their faith in this Yahweh they have pierced. Chapter 13, verse 1 speaks of that day. It says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Most certainly this points to Calvary and beyond Calvary to the second coming of our Lord Jesus, which is what we see in Revelation 1. You can turn there if you'd like. As John then records for us the, the vision given to him by God, he speaks to us of the promise of this coming revelation of Jesus at his second coming, the outpouring of his wrath upon the world before his second coming in the great tribulation. He says in verse 7 of chapter 1, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, speaking of Jesus. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. John lets us know that what we see on the cross of Calvary, a pierced Savior, is not a defeated Savior, but one who has paid our sin debt in full and will triumphantly return one day at His second coming. And His people and all of the world will see Him coming and they will realize who He is. Having denied Him generation upon generation upon generation from His first coming to His second coming, the generation, I believe, of the Jewish people at His second coming by God's Spirit, pouring out mercy and grace on them, will recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. And they will weep at the sight of Him, realizing that they killed the firstborn of their own people. And they will, in faith, receive their Messiah as their Savior, so much so that Paul will say, so all Israel will be saved. But not just all Israel who will see the one who was pierced, but Revelation 1 says all who are on earth at the time of His second coming will see Him and will weep and mourn on account of Him. Some will weep tears of repentant faith, recognizing all this time they've been wrong about Jesus. You see, they, didn't, they maybe believed He was truly a man. They might have even believed He truly died, but they did not believe He was truly the promised Savior until that moment of seeing Him at His return. Some will wail on account of Him out of complete horror. For now, they will be forever secured in their rebellion and spend eternity apart from Him in a place of eternal punishment, a place the Bible calls the eternal lake of fire, in which there will be no peace with God, and there will only be the suffering under His wrath deserved for sinners. Friend, you need not know that weeping of mourning and wailing because of your sin. You can today know the free and full forgiveness that is opened for you here when our Lord's body was pierced and blood and water flowed out. His sacrifice is sufficient and the eyewitness account from John is sufficient. You must believe. 
a friend, do you know the, the forgiveness and cleansing of your sins in the finished work of Jesus? Have you been washed by His blood and cleansed by His water? The fountain stands open today for you for His healing and purifying work. Simply look to Him and live. Believer, do you You know the awesome power of a crucified Savior upon your soul. Are you struck again with the reality that Jesus lived, died, was buried, was resurrected, and is soon returning? Do you know in Him the full forgiveness of your sins? Do you know the joy again of your salvation? Are you washed by His blood and cleansed by His water? Is your conscience daily cleaned by Him? Do you joyfully and gladly serve Him with the zeal that only His sacrifice could produce in your heart? May it be so. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank You for the clarity of John's testimony, of the work of our Savior. Thank You for every detail You've given to us. Help us to know and understand how each detail of this eyewitness account matters to our faith. And would you build us up in our holy faith for your glory. We do pray for unbelievers who may be among us. Father, we beg of you for their soul. We ask that you would bring them to true saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Help them to see their sin for what it is. Separating them from you. Father, by your kindness, would you show them that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That is sufficient for the forgiveness of their sin. Lord, would you do your work in these hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.